Gibson Girl Review, a gilded fiction podcast that rescues antique novels from the doom of mere decor and puts them back where they rightfully belong, in your to-be-read pile. Join us every other week as we rediscover forgotten stories from the Gilded Age and Progressive Era and uncover just how entertaining, educational, and relevant they still are more than a century later. And welcome back to another episode of the Gibson Girl Review. I am Jacinta Meredith. And I am Amy Drown. And we are here to talk about another beautiful, delightful old novel. Our favorite. Okay. But before we get into that, Amy, I have complaints to make. Complaints? Yes. Complaints. I would like you to know that it snowed here today. (laughs) For the first time in two years. Oh my gosh. The weather people warned us about this big snowstorm last week. (laughs) And they were warning us for days about it. And I think we ended up getting like a slight dusting and then it just rained. But this snowstorm, where it's like piled high, they didn't predict. Of course they did It just showed up out of nowhere. (laughs) And I was looking up flights to Florida. Oh, no. And I would like you to know that if I didn't have a vacation coming this summer... That is what I'd be spending my money on right now because I am already done with winter. See, and our winter up here in Montana just got started. (laughs) We didn't even have a white Christmas foot. Thanks to polar vortex, we now have snow. (laughs) And we have had the exciting, thrilling weather forecast that our temperatures would soon be soaring into the single digits. Oh, oh, oh. (laughs) I can finally go out and shovel my sidewalk again. <laughs> I don't leave the house when it's minus 35. There is so. a reason I no longer live in Minnesota. Yes. And it is specifically to do with the weather. This is true. And mosquitoes. <laughs> but, you know. Well, that's the difference between where I am up by Canada and yes. where you are in Virginia. <laughs> but the good thing is snow equals reading weather. That's true. And we've had a fire going in our fireplace almost nonstop, which is the perfect place to snuggle up and read. Cuddle up with little Tennyson purring in your lap and a book. If he would let me hold him, (laughs) he hates being held. He hates being petted. Really? Yes. He is an extremely independent cat. Oh, how funny. I like independent cats, but... I like independent cats that still want to occasionally cuddle with me. Mm -hmm. And if we are on the couch, he will go nowhere near it. Oh, that is so funny. Isn't that? My cat is the exact opposite. He's an independent cat, but he's also an alpha male assertive cat. (laughs) So when I sit down, he's not a snuggler. He's a leg man. Okay. (laughs) So you put your feet up on the couch on an ottoman, any kind of thing, he will be on your legs to say, you can't leave now until (laughs) I give you permission. And he's a 20-pound tabby tomcat. He's huge. (laughs) So it's like hyperextending my knees all winter long. But he loves being in your lap or curled up behind your knees if you're curled up sideways on the couch. He's a total spooner that way. So yeah, he's all about the legs. Well, Tennyson does like our legs, but mostly to attack them. That is all well, the good thing. Young. Are. That is true. Yeah. Maybe he'll grow into a more snuggly, affectionate kitty. <laughs> yes. Or not. Yeah, don't get my hopes up. Love him anyway. <laughs> I do. I love him anyway. Okay. Well, we do actually have a listener question today. Yay, I love those. Yes, me too. All right. So Christy, one of our Instagram followers, sent us a direct message with a question. Okay. She writes 
I love all of the pictures you share of your host's old book collections, and I'd like to start collecting old books myself. However, there are no stores where I live that really sell old books like the ones on your show, and I don't know if online booksellers can be trusted. Do you have any recommendations? That is a great question. (laughs) It is a very good question. I love that. First of all, yes, all of the old books that you see on our Instagram and Facebook posts actually are from our collections ourselves, Mm -hmm. from mine or Jacinta's or Amanda's. So you're seeing real books there. We're not using any kind of weird stock photos or anything. Yep. Because we love old books. That's why we started the show. We had these collections of old books ourselves. But I'm right there with you, Christy, in terms of living in a place that does not have any good old bookstores. I mean, we have bookstores that are old, but they don't sell old books. (laughs) Right. Or if they do, it's like 50 shells of used Daniel Steele paperbacks. Right, yeah. So most of my collection, personally, has actually been curated through online booksellers myself. Yeah, you do most of your shopping online, don't you? Well, from where I live, I have to. (laughs) (laughs) So we have actually developed a brand new page on our website, a shopping page. So if you go to gibsongirlreview.com, where we have three different ways that you can buy books. First of all, we are excited to announce that the Gibson Girl Review is now an affiliate with bookshop.org. So if you like to buy new books, you can help support the podcast by clicking on that link to shop with us at bookshop.org. Yeah, that's amazing. We also have on that page a list of recommended booksellers, and these are all booksellers that we have personally and successfully, happily bought books from. We've had great transactions with them. So this is not any kind of paid partnership. They're not advertising with us. These are booksellers that we, the hosts of the show, have handpicked for booksellers that you can trust online. We wouldn't be recommending them to all of you if we weren't using them ourselves. So that is definitely something, Christy, that you can go check out and help you start building that old book collection of your own. But online shopping is not the only way to shop for old antiquarian books. So what about you, Jacinta? What are some of the ways that you have found to add to your old book collection? I have no problem buying online. Abe Books is one of my very favorite places to shop. Yes. But I love being able to touch and feel those antique books. So usually whenever I am in the vicinity of a thrift store, a used bookstore, or an antique shop, I go straight to wherever I think they might have books. Yes. And it is actually not unusual for me to find one or two antique books tucked in among all of those modern paperbacks or ratty used copies. Yeah. Like, I'm honestly surprised how many times just a basic thrift store will just have a random antique book thrown in there. And you know what? That's actually where I got my copy of the book we're going to talk about today. I went to an antique store looking for something else, and one of the little consignment seller booths had a little collection of old books that they were using as decoration on the furniture that they were selling. So it wasn't a used bookstore. It was just prop books. Yeah. But that's another little tidbit. If you go to just antique stores, a lot of these people in staging their antiques for sale, they often have antique books yes as part of their visual display and those books are for sale yeah so that is where i found my copy of the book that we're going to talk about today (laughs) and it's gorgeous i instantly recognized the cover art designer and just 
that book is coming home. I don't care about your furniture. I want your book. So (laughs) I do have a few antique stores like that here where I live. So the books that I have been able to buy in person, that is 99% of the time where I find them. (laughs) Yes. So congratulations, Christy, on starting your book collection. And we can't wait to see it. Please share pictures. We're so excited for you. Yes. All right. So now that all of you are prepped to go start your own old book collections. Yeah. Don't go shopping yet. We still have an episode to do. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Please wait just a few minutes. (laughs) So we're going to start off today with a rather unusual real life Gibson girl to introduce to you all. Mm -hmm. All season long, we're taking a few minutes at the beginning of each episode to share a little bit about one of the women who actually posed for Charles Dana Gibson's illustrations. Yep. But today, Amy is going to share about the Gibson girl fraud actress Camille Clifford. online these days for anything even remotely Gibson Girl related, and I guarantee one of the top search results will be a photo of Camille Clifford, the early 20th century actress with the impossibly small waist and perfect S-curve figure. Sources everywhere declare her to be Charles Dana Gibson's most famous model, and even in her lifetime, she was billed on stage as the original Gibson Girl. But there's just one problem. She wasn't. Camille Clifford never modeled for Charles Dana Gibson. And even more ironically, this young woman who built her entire career upon being the perfect representation of one of Gibson's famous American girls wasn't even American. Camilla Clifford was born in Antwerp in 1885 to a Danish-Irish father and a Norwegian mother. The little family roamed from Belgium to Sweden and Canada before settling for a time in Norway, where Camilla's mother died and her father abandoned her. She was legally adopted by a maternal aunt and uncle, and her name changed to Camilla Otterson. But it tells you how poorly they treated her when, despite having been abandoned by her father when she was only two years old, Camilla dropped the Otterson name and reclaimed the surname Clifford as soon as she was legally old enough. But that was not until she had come to America, and that came about by the mercy of a distant relative of her father who eventually sent for her in Norway. Camilla ran away from the Otterson home when she was just 14, found passage across the Atlantic, and once settled with her relatives in Boston, immediately took up domestic work. And when she answered an advertisement for extras in a new stage production, She found her calling. The theater became her life, and she worked diligently to improve her manners, her poise, and even her English in order to become a stage star. Her big break came in 1904, when she won a beauty contest of sorts held by Henry W. Savage, a theatrical manager who was about to take a company of actors to Europe. His newest production was The Prince of Pilsen, a play which featured a song about beautiful girls from all the various cities of America. 
he decided to hold an open casting call to find his perfect Miss New York, a role which had no lines and only required the young woman to walk across the stage and curtsy like a Gibson girl, according to the script. Camilla, who had now simplified her name to simply Camille Clifford, won the contest and set sail for London with the Savage Company, where the play was a huge success and her simple walk across the stage ended up stealing the show. London became obsessed with the Gibson girl all over again and with Camille Clifford in particular, so much so that when the Savage production ended, Camille stayed behind in London, signing a new contract to appear at the Vaudeville Theatre. By this time, her popularity and her famous Gibson Girl walk had spawned hundreds of English imitators, so that when her new production began, the theater was quick to point out that it was featuring the original Gibson Girl, as in the actress who originated the role on stage. But that headline became an epithet that took on a life of its own and blurred the line between a woman who modeled for Charles Dana Gibson and one who simply impersonated his artistic creations on the stage. And since the idea of being an actual Gibson model was good for business, it appears that Camille and her theatrical managers did nothing to correct the misconception. Such was the situation in 1905 when, after having announced his retirement, Charles Dana Gibson arrived in London and visited the Vaudeville Theatre one night, where a woman named Camille Clifford, whom he had never seen before, let alone drawn, was being advertised as the original Gibson girl. Yet, as quickly as Camille rose to fame and fortune, she turned her back on it. She retired in 1906 in order to marry Lord Bruce, a nobleman and automobile salesman. Their one daughter, born in 1909, tragically died just five days later, and Bruce himself was killed in the Great War in December 1914. Camille briefly returned to the stage after her husband's death, but when she married again in 1917, she retired for good. She and her new husband settled down to a life in the country, and by the time of Camille's death in 1971, she appears to be all but forgotten. Yet she had once been the most famous woman on the London stage. And while her reputation as an alleged Gibson girl may have been a fraud, her journey from immigrant servant to celebrated actress is certainly indicative of the great American dream, and Gibson's biographer recounts that years after that night at the theater in 1905, Camille Clifford did finally meet Charles Dana Gibson in person. She asked him to sign her autograph book, and along with his famous signature, he drew a quick sketch of her. So, in the end, Camille Clifford became a legitimate Gibson Girl model after all. So I feel like Camille was the perfect subject for today's episode in terms of being a fraud, because (laughs) we're going to be talking a lot about that kind of thing today. Yes, we are. So do you want to tell our listeners what book we are going to talk about? Yes. Today's featured book is In the Bishop's Carriage by Miriam Michelson, first published 
as a partial short story in 1903, and then as a full book in 1904. Which I thought was fascinating. It is really fascinating. The entire first chapter was published as a short story in Ainsley's magazine in 1903. And it was the publisher, Bob's Merrill Company, who actually then reached out to Miriam mm -hmm. and said, you want to write that up as a full book? We'll publish it. That is really cool. She said, okay. <laughs> and so the original short story was titled In the Bishop's Carriage because that's the entire scene that takes place in chapter one. And then she just wrote out a story for that character that went on from there. So it's a really unusual start to her fiction writing career and to this book. And this is a book that you and I both own. Yes. This is the first one that we have both owned, I believe. At least that we both own antique copies. Right, right. Physical antique copies. And for some extra fun this episode, we actually do not have the same copy. No, I have a much prettier one. <laughs> That's what you think. <laughs> the fun fact is we have two completely different bindings of this book. So we're going to have to post two different pictures and let you guys, our listeners, decide which one you think is prettier. Mine, clearly. No, no. Mine's the original <laughs> and the famous one, so... Excuse me. Yeah. Mine was also 1904. And it's actually kind of funny because my copy has the original cover design by Margaret Armstrong, who we talk about in the very first episode this season, but your copy has a Harrison Fisher on the cover, and Harrison Fisher is the illustrator of the book on the inside, so it does kind of make sense that they would put one of his drawings on the outside as well. That's actually why I got it, because it was Harrison Fisher. Like you recognize the Harrison Fisher picture on the cover? Yes, and that is why I picked it up. Those are ones that are often, when you see them online, they're like, ooh, Gibson girl cover, and you look at it and you're like, nope, that's a Harrison Fisher. That's <laughs> not Gibson. <laughs> Maybe next season we'll have a whole series on our history segment about all of the other artists from this time period besides Charles Dana Gibson, because he wasn't the only one. Yeah. So that's why we're reviewing this book today, because you and I have these dueling editions of <laughs> In the Bishop's Carriage. We both bought them for their beautiful covers, but neither of us had read them. Nope. <laughs> so we had to. It was perfect. But what is this book about? The title, In the Bishop's Carriage, sounds very sophisticated and regal. Very refined. And like a high society type book. Yes. Because that's the only type of people that a bishop would <laughs> transport in his carriage, right? And I'm not going to lie, I read the title In the Bishop's Carriage, and that is precisely the type of story I expected. Yeah, I thought like a very Little Women-esque right. prim and proper tale. Yes, but instead... This story is about a pickpocket. Yes. A vivacious, spunky young woman named Nancy Olden, who makes her living by stealing things, partly because she's in love with a guy. Who is a thief. Yeah. Yeah. But let's be honest, she also kind of likes the thrill of it. Oh, yeah. So after a series of misadventures stemming from accidentally jumping into a bishop's carriage, Nancy begins to think about turning her life around which is definitely easier said than done. See, I wouldn't say she accidentally jumped into the bishop's carriage. She climbed in on purpose because she was hiding from the cops who were chasing her. That is true. As she was running out of the train station in stolen clothes. <laughs> I was more thinking in terms of, I don't think she would have picked a bishop's carriage if she'd known it was a bishop. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I think she just like, hey, that looks like an upper class yes. carriage. I don't think she was expecting it to be a bishop. So, But yes, she was running around in stolen clothes. It's not written in the title page of the book itself, but there were some advertisements and some reviews that subtitled this book, 
The Autobiography of a Female Thief. Oh, really? Yes, which I thought was really fascinating because that's how the book is told. Yes. It's told in first person from the point of view of this pickpocket thief little girl. Well, she's not little girl. I think she's 18. Mm Mm-hmm. We'll actually share the opening scene of this book a little later on, but it was kind of shocking to be like, oh, this is the lead protagonist of this story? Okay. (laughs) Not what I was expecting at all. So this is told in such an unusual way. Yes. I couldn't think of a single book that I have read before that's written like this. I literally told my husband the same thing. I don't think I've ever read another book like this. Yeah, it's a whole story about a heroine who is a criminal. The person you're rooting for is a thief, right? She lives on the street. She lives a life of crime. And it's not like she's sad about it either. No, she's not. She's unapologetically criminal. (laughs) It's told in first person, but she's not directing it to the reader. No. The entire thing is like you are reading her private correspondence and conversation with friends of hers that you don't even see. Yeah, you don't even get the other side of the conversation. No, you don't. Okay, so it's like what you're actually doing is eavesdropping on this character's letters and conversations with other people. Yes. Which in and of itself is a criminal act. (laughs) And so you're kind of like, should I keep listening? If we were eavesdropping in the real world? No, probably not. But you do anyway. And so I just kept thinking about that, like... The author is writing it in such a way that we have to kind of disregard the polite rules of society to read the story. Interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah, I've never read anything like that before. Yeah, so like when we talk about how we're basically eavesdropping, for instance, there's this one part early on in the book where she is waxing on about what a nice voice this specific guy has. And then all of a sudden she stops and goes, well, Tom, fine, if you're going to get jealous over a voice, and then she moves on with her story. Yes. So it's like she's having the conversation with with Tom, Tom. and we're just listening to it. Exactly. As a writer, I was just really intrigued by how Miriam Michelson crafted the story. Yeah. And honestly, I think that's one of the reasons I loved it so much is because it was the most unique voice I've ever read. And especially for a novel from this time period, I could see somebody as a modern author maybe trying something like this. And maybe they have, and I just haven't read it. You know, I haven't read every book out there. Yeah, that's possible. And this is something that the original reviews that we found actually commented on. Okay. The fact that the storytelling method here was very original. Even the reviews that were kind of negative, saying that her escapades as a thief and a pickpocket were kind of improbable at times. Mm Mm-hmm. They all really admired Miriam Michelson's writing style. Well, that's really cool to know. They called it original and unconventional, which I totally agree with. Absolutely. So that's our clue that this whole storytelling method was as new to them as it is to us. But some of the reviews were mixed. Like I said, they kind of thought she got away with maybe a little more than a real life (laughs) would. I don't know. She got caught a lot. Yeah, but she never got sent to jail. That's true. That is true. She may have gotten caught, but she never paid the consequences. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And we'll talk more about that in a minute because I think there's some messages behind that that the author may have been trying to get across. (laughs) But speaking of this original storytelling... Let's talk about Miriam Michelson, because this was her first book. Okay. I don't know anything about her, so I'm excited about this. Well, I didn't know anything about her either, so I had to do some digging to find out who is Miriam Michelson. 
She was born in California in 1870. She was the seventh of eight children born to Polish Jewish immigrants. Oh, interesting. Who had left Poland to escape the rising anti-Semitism there and came to California and actually built up a successful merchant business in the aftermath of the gold rush. Wow. And she actually was not the only, or dare I say, even the most successful kid in her family because... Her youngest brother, Charles, became a journalist and ended up as an advisor to FDR. Whoa. President Franklin D. Roosevelt. Oh my gosh. And her oldest brother, Albert, became a physicist and won the Nobel Prize <laughs> for Physics in 1907. No way. In fact, he was the first American citizen to ever win a Nobel Prize for one of the sciences. Okay, that's amazing. Talk about overachieving family. This is awesome. She's probably sitting there like, and all I did was write a book. <laughs> right? Well, she did actually become a journalist herself. Okay. She started out writing for the San Francisco Call in 1895, and she wasn't writing just the women's page. You know, mm -hmm. she's not writing relationship advice or the housekeeping columns. She was actually reporting on local crime and politics. And when she moved over to writing for the San Francisco Bulletin mm -hmm. in 1898, she was actually put on the Chinatown beat and also ended up writing about railroad corruption in the state. Wow. So she was really getting down and dirty in there with legitimate investigative reporting. Okay. Which I think knowing that, you can see a lot of why there's so much detail sure. in in the bishop's carriage. She clearly has like a really good firsthand knowledge of this kind of criminal underworld. <laughs> I don't know if she actually knew a pickpocket who had these kind of experiences, if this story is in any way based on a real life person, but I think Miriam Michelson clearly knows what she's talking about. It sounded very natural. And that's another thing that the reviews of this book in 1904 commented on, is that her journalism career clearly feeds into this book in a very positive way. So once again, we have a journalist who ends up as a fiction writer. <laughs> we have a lot of them on this podcast that seem to be the career trajectory back in the Gilded Age and Progressive era. Apparently. But she's the first woman author that we've had on that path. So that is exciting. And this book was such a success that she eventually turned away from journalism to focus on writing fiction full time. With how good this book was, I'm not surprised. Right? <laughs> so talking about the author and this journalism career and this unusual story, it all centers around this extremely unconventional heroine. <laughs> yes. Nance Olden. So Jacinta... <laughs> What on earth are we supposed to make of this girl? <laughs> okay, so just like the book, I would say Nance was one of the more unique characters I've ever read. Mm -hmm. Despite the fact that she seems to see absolutely nothing wrong with stealing, at least at first, I couldn't help but love her. She has this super quick-witted, active personality. Yes. She's very vivacious, and it's hard not to like her. Yes. A lot of times that can be irritating in characters, and I feel like with Nancy, it was simply who she was, and I kind of loved that. Yeah. Nancy was absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Despite the kind of moral ambiguity at times, like I was never entirely convinced that she ever truly thought that what she was doing was 
wrong. Right? You kind of question that. You're still turning every page wondering if she's going to reform and change her ways. Or if she's going to go back to it. There was one review that called her Oliver Twist in Petticoats. <laughs> okay. And another one that said she was Trilby and Becky Sharp rolled into one. <laughs> These characters are all people that are like, the world be darned, I'm going to get mine. Oh, yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. This might be my life, but I'm embracing it. Exactly. There are other characters in this book, though, too. I kind of felt like we didn't get to know a lot of the other characters really well, just because it was so much her and her personality. But at the same time, you see her interact with them. Yes. And because it is told in this first-person way, a lot of it is dialogue. And so there are some really witty, dynamic scenes. Right. I did love her relationship with Fred, the theater manager. It was a great balance. The way that he, like, stood up to her, but also stood up for her. Right. You really got a sense of this kind of iron sharpening iron between the two of them. Like, she may have thought about the bishop occasionally when she's trying to turn her life around, but it's really Fred who ends up holding her accountable almost simply by being there. Yeah, there is an actual bishop. <laughs> Shocker. Who climbs into his carriage and is surprised to find a woman there. <laughs> oh my gosh, he was so, so sweet. He was just, oh my gosh. And I loved the fact that when she got into his carriage... She spots the copy of Quo Vadis. Oh my gosh, yes. On the seat. Okay, I read that and I was like, Amy is going to love that. I was just like, yes. <laughs> I love Quo Vadis and we did an episode on that last season. But it was just one of those little moments that having read the book and kind of seeing it in its real life context in the day and age this way, just felt like this great historical connection to a past time that I know why that bishop would have had that book in his carriage. And just even mentioning that the book's in his carriage kind of immediately gives you an idea of his personality. It does. So I just thought that was a really fun connection to one of our past episodes. I loved it. One of my personal favorite books. Just loved it. There is also a villain, sort of. Yeah. With the character of Tom. He's more like a part-time villain. Yeah. But for the first half of the book, he's the person that the whole story is directed to. Nancy is talking and writing to Tom. Yeah. So then when Tom gets caught and sent to prison, the second half of the book turns to Nancy's fellow orphan, Mag Monahan. Mm -hmm. They grew up together at the orphan asylum run by Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, which they abbreviate to just the cruelty. So most of the book, you're just like, they grew up in someplace called the cruelty? Right? And maybe that was a real-life nickname. Yeah. Maybe people in New York in 1904 really did call that asylum the cruelty. Yeah. But I think also the fact that these children all refer to it as simply the cruelty is the author saying something. 100% agree. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. We keep talking about how unusual and original this book is. Let's give everybody a sample. Yes, let's do this. We don't normally do this, but for this book, it is written in such an unusual way that it would be really challenging for us to drop you into the middle of a scene in the middle of the book. Yeah, it just wouldn't work. So we are actually going to share with you today the very beginning. And we are thrilled to introduce all of you to another new member of our Gibson Girl Review family of guest readers, Hannah Vandeven. She's going to read the very beginning of the book and just drop you into the story, into Nancy's point of view, just like we were as readers. 
When the thing was at its hottest, I bolted. Tom, like the darling he is, yes, you are, old fellow, you're as precious to me as... as you are to the police if they could only get their hands on you. Well, Tom drew off the crowd, having passed the old gentleman's watch to me, and I made for the women's rooms. The station was crowded, as it always is in the afternoon, and in a minute I was strolling into the big square room, saying slowly to myself to keep me steady, Nancy, you're a college girl, just in from Bryn Mawr to meet your papa. Just see if your hat's on straight. I did, going up to the big glass and looking beyond my excited face to the room behind me. There sat the woman who can never nurse her baby except where everybody can see her, in a railroad station. There was the woman who's always hungry, nibbling chocolates out of a box, and the woman fallen asleep with her hat on the side and hairpins dropping out of her hair, and the woman who's beside herself with fear that she'll miss her train, and the woman who is taking notes about the other women's rigs, and... And I didn't like the look of that man with the cap who opened the swinging door a bit and peeped in. The women's waiting room is no place for a man, nor for a girl who's got somebody else's watch inside her waist. Luckily, my back was toward him, but just as the door swung back, he might have caught the reflection of my face in a mirror hanging opposite to the big one. I retreated, going to an inner room where the ladies were having the maid brush their gowns, soiled from suburban travel and the dirty station. The deuce is in the way the women stare. I took off my hat and jacket for a reason to stay there, and hung them up as leisurely as I could. Nance, I said under my breath, to the alert-eyed, pug-nosed girl in the mirror, who gave a quick glance about the room as I bent to wash my hands. Women stare cause they're women. There's no meaning in their look. If they were men now, you might twitter. I smoothed my hair and reached out my hand to get my hat and jacket on when, when... Oh, it was long, long enough to cover you from your chin to your heels. It was a dark, warm red and it had a high collar of chinchilla that was fairly scrumptious. And just about it the hat hung, a red cloth toque caught up on the side with some of the same fur. The black maid misunderstood my involuntary gesture. I had all my best duds on. And when a lot of women stare, it makes the woman they stare at peacock naturally and... and... Well, ask Tom what he thinks of my style when I'm on parade. At any rate, it was the maid's fault. She took down the coat and hat and held them for me as though they were mine. What could I do except just slip into the silk-lined beauty and set the toque on my head? The fool girl that owned them was having another maid mend a tear in her skirt over in the corner. The little place was crowded. Anyway, I had both the coat and hat on and was out into the big afternoon in a jiffy. So I feel like that was the perfect scene to read, if only because that beginning was part of the original short story to be published. Yes. So it really legitimately gives you a good idea for the tone of the entire book. Yes. You see that she's working with Tom, mm -hmm. but then you also see how, like you said, she kind of loves the thrill of it. Yeah. And with the coat and the hat... You know, she hangs hers up, but the one next door is prettier. And how easy it is to simply slip it on, walk out the door. She doesn't hesitate. She just no, she does doesn't. it because she can get away with it. She desires it. She takes what she wants. Yep. It's fascinating. Like, this is the protagonist. This is the heroine <laughs> that we're supposed to care about. It is kind of like a, what the heck kind of book is this? But it also grabs you in such a way that you have to keep reading to find out 
what happens? Does she get caught? Does she repent? And there's a great payoff at the end of the book that comes back to this very same coat and hat. I loved it. Yeah. It was that perfect full circle. Yeah, it was so great. But I also love this little scene because it's such a fun little historical glimpse right. into this train station, this women's restroom. Just this little day in the life glimpse of women sitting there resting, washing hands, nursing, mm -hmm. maids who are helping to mend and clean your clothes after you've been traveling. And I just love that. Right? It's just that little tiny detail that we don't even think about anymore. We certainly don't have anymore. And gosh, can you imagine, you know, having like bathroom attendants like that again? No. <laughs> I'm sure there are some fancy places that still do, but that's definitely not the norm anymore. So there are all kinds of little historical hints like that throughout the book. And I loved how natural it was yeah. because it was just a part of daily life. She described it in a way that kept your interest. And I feel like that's one issue with modern historical novels is I love getting historical tidbits, but they have to overexplain everything because we don't know it exists anymore. Yes. But in its original context like this, you get such a good idea of what life was actually like without that over-explanation. Yes, exactly. What other kind of themes or relevant ideas did you glean from this story? The kind of feel of the book was a lot looser morally mm -hmm. than I expect from books of this time period. And when I say that, don't worry, I don't mean that there's a bunch of bad stuff in it. Well, there's a bunch of stealing. Yeah. <laughs> I just mean like books of this time period are usually a little more proper and uptight and going to the dinner party and yeah. being in the correct society. And this is very much a, you know, I'm going out with this guy and I like this guy and I'm going to go steal this and I'm going to go to the theater. And it just had a much almost more relaxed moral tone than I expected. Even for a pickpocket book, I half expected it to go into the morality of the issue and it never really did. No, it doesn't. And some of the original reviews talk about how racy this book is. <laughs> and I think that kind of comes across, like you're saying, it kind of plays a little footloose with social rules and social norms. Right. So I can see how it would feel very racy and daring. Yeah. And yet you can't help liking her as a character. I know. There are so many things in this book that point to the fact that Michelson, as the author, is basically telling us Nancy is a product of the way people made her out to be. Right. Yeah. You know, if she had been given a fair shake earlier in life, she wouldn't have turned to this life of crime in the first place. Right. She's not blaming Nancy for being the way that she is and kind of asking us as the reader not to blame Nancy. Right. The way that she kind of focuses on Nancy's lack of responsibility for the way that she is. Right. That felt really intentional to me on Michelson's part that she was saying something about the whole nature versus nurture debate. Especially the way she writes all of these secondary characters in the book as seeing something good in Nancy. And that if she's just given the right chance, she'll turn over a new leaf. Exactly. It's all about bringing out the good in others. Right. And that definitely felt like a very intentional theme and message of the book. That, hey, the world sees you as nothing but a pickpocket, a dirty orphan living on the streets. Mm -hmm. But if someone would just stop and see the real you and give you a tiny chance, maybe you could turn it around. And you kind of see that later in the book. You do. When she does the same thing with another pickpocket. Exactly. So. 
that really struck me as a message from the book that people are inherently good and just need to be shown the way. And I'm not sure that that's really a mentality we have anymore. I feel like that's a very interesting question. I feel like we tend to be more cynical and believing the worst in people nowadays. I would almost call it a lack of grace. Okay. Like these days we don't have grace for anything. Yeah. Someone makes a single mistake, they shouldn't be forgiven. There are no second chances, right? Yeah. It definitely had that whole, you know, she couldn't help it vibe. But there was also a lot of grace extended. Yes. A lot of people who saw something more and they were willing to give her that chance. Yes. Second chance. Third chance. Fourth chance. Right. Fifth chance. Seems like everybody she met. Gave her another chance. (laughs) Was somehow beguiled by her, by her beauty, because of course she has to be beautiful. (laughs) Or her charm or her wit or her vivacity. Something about her attracts them to her and instantly puts them on her side. Like Latimer. Oh, Mr. Latimer. Who we have not discussed at all yet. Loved him! But before he even talked to her, he was on her side. And instantly playing her game like he knows exactly who she isn't. He knew immediately. And he jumped right in and joined her in the graft anyway. And it was kind of fun. I kind of loved that. It was fun. She didn't know he was playing along, but he does instantly. And so, yeah, the way that everybody just champions her in the end. Yeah. It was really fun to read, but again, it's very thought-provoking. Is there a message for us today to be learned from that? Can we be filled with more grace, like you said? Yeah. Can we not turn a blind eye to the criminal past? And I don't think any of the characters in this book do that, but at the same time, to give her a chance to overcome her past. Right. I found it thought-provoking. Long after I closed the book and put it back on the shelf, I was still thinking about that and wondering, what would I have done? If I had been sitting in my backyard like Mr. Latimer Mm -hmm. and had someone like Nancy jumping over my fence with a pocket full of stolen diamonds, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I don't know either. But you can't help putting yourself in their shoes and thinking about it, which is perhaps what the author wanted all along. It was a little challenging for me at times, I will admit that. Okay. Because again, my sense of right and wrong was kind of butting up against Nancy sometimes. Sure. Because whatever happened in her past, whether she's responsible for becoming a thief or not, Mm -hmm. she still was stealing. She was still a criminal. Yeah. And I'm not convinced she understands that that is wrong. You know, I kind of got the same impression. I don't know. I feel like in this book, Miriam Michelson managed to capture my attention with the heroine enough that I didn't mind putting all that aside to see what happened to her. So I agree. I kind of was waiting for the big moral, oh my gosh, I shouldn't have been stealing, versus just a, oh, now I'm going the right direction, I suppose. But even though that never really happened, you're never entirely positive that she understands she should have had to pay something for that. I don't know. I still loved her. I loved that she got to stay on her new path. Yeah. I didn't have that hard of a time with it. And I feel like I should have had a harder time with it. (laughs) (laughs) There is one major thing that was a big challenge for me at the end. Okay. But it would be also a big spoiler. So let's go talk about it in our secret hiding place. Let's do it. I'm all about this because I have something too. Because I think we probably have the same one. (laughs) (laughs) You might be right. (laughs) 
This part of our conversation has been removed from today's episode and put into the spoiler room, our brand new mini episode series available exclusively on our website, gibsongirlreview.com. So if you've already read In the Bishop's Carriage, or if you don't care about spoilers and want to hear our thoughts about the whole book anyway, just click on the link in today's show notes and follow the prompts to join Dana's Club, our membership portal where you can access not only the Spoiler Room mini-episodes, but all of our exclusive bonus content. And for a limited time, membership in Dana's Club is 100% free. Head to GibsonGirlReview.com to join Dana's Club and listen to The Spoiler Room. So all of this to say, today's title quote really represents Nancy's whole attitude to life. Yes. There's really no better way to explain it. No, there isn't. There is a point at which she has tried to reform and a problem has arisen that's luring her back into her old way of life and thieving and she chides herself for dancing on a volcano again. <laughs> and she kind of does that throughout this whole story, I think. I agree. I think that dancing on a volcano is really apropos. It feels like Nancy's personality and the plot all mixed in one. Yes, exactly. I just feel like it describes it perfectly. It's a dangerous game. Every time she sets out to con somebody to steal something. But you also get the impression she's dancing through life. Exactly. And the fact that it's dancing shows the fun and enjoyment side of it too so it's a dangerous game but like you said way back at the beginning of the episode she likes it too right so yeah so she lives her whole life teetering on this edge between any minute one of her lies one of her schemes is going to blow up and destroy everything she's built for herself yes (laughs) but as a character what if anything do you think in the bishop's carriage can Shed some light on for us in terms of the Gibson girl ideal or what femininity looked like in this day and age. To be honest with you, I didn't see much of the Gibson girl in this book. And I think it's because she was such a unique character. She's a female pickpocket. She's dancing on a volcano. Like she didn't really have the characteristics when you think of a Gibson girl. Yeah, I would agree. She's a little too nefarious right, to yeah. match the image that we have of the beautiful, charming, alluring, whimsical Gibson girl. Right. She doesn't fit that mold. But she's also not bound by any gender limitations. That's true. She does whatever she wants. She's definitely not submissive to any of the men <laughs> in the story. She is absolutely their equal, if not their yeah. superior. Because almost every single one of the minor players that surround her in this story is mm-hmm. a man. Hey, that's true. I didn't think of that. And that is very Gibson-like in terms of she knows she's the stronger sex. She's the strongest person alive. She can handle anything. So I did see some of the spirit of that Gibson girl ideal in her. I think she's too brash and nefarious to be a true Gibson girl heroine, but that doesn't make Mm -hmm. her any less fascinating or worthwhile to read about. Well, in a sense, it almost makes it more interesting because you get to see another side. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, not everyone is a Gibson girl. Not everyone is a new woman. Exactly. Just like in today's age, there's all kinds. There isn't just one specific or two specific titles to define all the women of the day. Exactly. And even after she's reformed and living the straight and narrow life, Mm -hmm. she's still very much herself. And one of the parts I thought was most fascinating was when she really finally threw herself into her opportunity to become an actress, she compared it 
to stealing. Yes. And she was like, this is a graft in itself. I am acting a part just like I do when I steal, but this time I'm being paid for it and they love me for it. Yes. So it's such an interesting perspective. Yeah, it's fascinating. There were a lot of really great scenes like that. So in the end, I did love this book and I did love her as a character. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I should also point out there were some mild language episodes, nothing super graphic by modern standards, but there were a few mild swear words and abrasive language moments Mm -hmm. and some scenes too where things were getting potentially violent between nancy and a man in her life that might be triggers for some modern readers so keep that in mind Mm -hmm. this book is kind of racy for its day and age (laughs) keywords being for its day and age exactly this book was a huge hit i certainly enjoyed it i recommend it yeah i loved this book well as we keep saying because it was so unique yes I've been on a contemporary reading kick for a while Mm -hmm. now, and I've been reading a whole bunch of contemporary books in a row. And this was such a fascinating contrast because in modern books, we have to follow a specific formula. Yes. And we have to wrap up every single string and there's specific motifs we have to meet, one of which we'll be talking about in the spoiler room. But this didn't follow any of that. And Part of that is, I think, because it is an antique novel and there were just fewer rules to follow. So I feel like having this contrasted to the modern reading I've been doing almost made me love it more because it is such a different feel from most of the books I read, both old and modern. Well, and I've been reading a lot of the antique novels lately and I can tell you the same thing. It's very different. Nancy is an unusual character and Miriam Michelson was a unique author. And I look forward to reading more of her books. Me too. Highly recommend. And now it's time to close the cover on In the Bishop's Carriage by Miriam Michelson. Yes, and special thanks to today's guest reader, Hannah Vandeven. Join us next time when we revisit the past and examine the present through the pages of another antique novel. And until then, keep reading like a Gibson girl. Thank you for listening to the Gibson Girl Review, a Curious Antiquarian production. For complete show notes, transcripts, download links, and more, please visit us at gibsongirlreview.com. 